Now put yourself in the disciples' place. What began as a special meal celebrating the Passover has truly turned into a disaster. Jesus starts the meal by sharing with them information that makes the disciples feel like they're pushed off a cliff without a parachute into anxiety, fear, and feelings of abandonment because Jesus says that he's leaving them. Anxiety bubbles up in the pits of their stomachs. He shares in chapter 13 that his time has come. Fear grips their muscles. And where he's going, they cannot come. They're cut to the heart. Jesus is abandoning them. To accompany Jesus everywhere that he's walked for three years. Then to be told that Jesus is going somewhere that they cannot explains their feelings of abandonment. The fishermen left their business. Matthew left his tax, collector, uh, his tax collecting career. And all of them left their families to follow Jesus. And now he is leaving them as hopeless wanderers. Now, on top of these feelings, there are things occurring at this dinner that the disciples don't understand. One of their band of brothers departed the meal into the, into the night after receiving bread from Jesus. But the disciples are confused because what Jesus reveals to them cannot be perceived with their five senses. He says that a spiritual war is raging. What began in chapter 1 when Jesus, the light, entered the dark world, the plans of darkness are now bearing fruit. What began with 13 individuals at the meal, Jesus plus the 12 disciples, became 14 when Satan himself entered the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And their time together is literally short, as Jesus says to them in our passage today, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Now put yourself in the disciples' place. Not only is their mentor, their provider, their Lord, counselor, helper, friend, leaving them, he's leaving them in the domain of a powerful enemy with one less in their band of brothers to boot. Consider the depth of anxiety or fear, abandonment that they're feeling. So what did be, uh, begin as a special meal became a nightmare for the disciples. The tour is over. The band is breaking up. Now, Jesus' purpose in this passage is to equip his 11 disciples to fight their anxiety fear and abandonment after he departs. He's giving them tools to do it in our passage. Because he says in verse 27, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Although he, he tells them difficult truths concerning his departure and the coming of the ruler of the world, he equips them with the tools that they need to maintain an intimate relationship with following him, even when he is physically absent. So on your listening guide, it says Jesus prepares the disciples for his departure with, number one, reassuring promises. 
the disciples interpret his departure from them as a tragedy. Jesus reinterprets it in the truth. His departure is actually better for them than if he stayed with them. And his reassurance centers around the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, that title, helper, is translated from the Greek, paraclete. Now, I don't normally dabble in Greek. But it will make a necessary point here soon. Helper, or paraclete, is also in verse 26. It says, but the helper, and then Jesus reveals his identity, the Holy Spirit. So, notice under number one on your listening guide, the statement, the Holy Spirit is another paraclete equals. So, first, write helper after the equals, because the ESV translates paraclete as helper in this instance. But now this Greek word has a depth of meaning, and helper doesn't convey paraclete fully. Like in the NIV, it's also translated as helper, but there's a footnote which says counselor. So next to helper in that space, write counselor. In the King James Version, Jesus promises the disciples a comforter. Add comforter to your growing list. And I'll add one more term for you. The same word paraclete is found in 1 John 2.1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. So add advocate to your list. So now, the statement on your outline should read, the Holy Spirit is another paraclete, equals, helper, counselor, comforter, advocate. But notice that the Holy Spirit is another paraclete which Jesus says in verse 16. He uses the word another. And 1 John 2.1 identifies Jesus as the other paraclete. When it says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So the first paraclete is leaving. But let not your hearts be troubled. He's sending another, the Holy Spirit. And he's a helper, a counselor, a comforter, and an advocate. Now, a lot of times when reading theology books, I've seen paraclete taken from the Greek straight to the English because no English word can do it justice. So, for example, the Holy Spirit is a helper, but he's not like your bat boy that waits in the dugout on your beck and call while you're the superstar on the field. It's not what it means. The Holy Spirit is a counselor, but he's not like the counselor you had at summer camp and youth group. The Holy Spirit is a comforter, but he's not your emotional support animal. In Elizabethan English, comforter, comforter meant to strengthen, 
but the English language has evolved over time. Even advocate can't capture the meaning uh, perfectly. The Holy Spirit and Jesus advocate for their people in heaven in a legal sense, but there are other functions besides the legal sense as well. So it may be best to think of the Holy Spirit as all these titles together. He helps believers. He counsels believers for our good. He comforts believers and he advocates for believers. So this is the paraclete that they will receive after Jesus departs. But now let's look more specifically at his benefits. Point A. The Father and the Son will dwell within them. Several, several verses together make this theme, but maybe the main verse is verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He said, We. So who is Jesus referring to? He's referring to himself and his Father. So where's the home? In these disciples. The Father and the Son together will live inside them. And us too through the Holy Spirit. Notice the equality and the intimacy of fellowship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. All three are God. And they're all three equally God. And they're all one. And they make their one home inside the disciples of Jesus. God is opening the fellowship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed since eternity past to include people. And Jesus takes an earlier promise and puts it on steroids. Notice verse 2 of chapter 14. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The word translated room in verse 2 is the same Greek word translated as home in verse 23. The word means dwelling place. So in verse 2, Jesus promises to go prepare a dwelling place for Peter to live in heaven. But now, Judas is promised to become the dwelling place of God on earth. And the disciples will host not only Jesus, but the Father within them. This is an intimacy, a deeper relationship, a union with God that is grander than what they currently experience. This is the next step of God's revelation to people. God's presence was dwelling in the room of the temple. Then God took on flesh and lived and breathed and walked and talked next to his people. But now Jesus promises that he will live within his people. So Jesus is saying that it benefits the disciples for him to depart. 
to further illustrate this unity between Father, Son, and Spirit that the disciples will benefit from and that you and I can as well, notice these other verses. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Jesus asks, but the Father sends. It's slightly different in verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, in this instance, the Father sends, but now in Jesus' name with his authority. Theologian D.A. Carson writes, If he, notice he, not it, not the force, if he is sent in Jesus' name, he is Jesus' emissary, not simply his substitute, The Spirit is Jesus' representative and will continue His mission in the world to save sinners. Now, more verses on the sending of the Spirit. In John 15, 26, the Spirit is sent by the Son from the Father and proceeds from the Father. And then in 16, 7, Jesus says that He sends the Spirit to the disciples. Now, why is this essential who sends the spirit the father or the son the interchanging phrases of the sender of the spirit teach the unity of the father and the son and amplify that importance the one universal church in the world at the time divided between east and west in the year 1054 over who sends the spirit Sadly, the doctrine that divided what became the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches is a doctrine teaching unity, the tight cohesion of the Father and the Son. So we're still considering Jesus' teaching on the oneness that he has with the Father in order to highlight the fellowship shared with the believer upon the coming of the Spirit. So, in answering Philip's demand to see the Father, look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And then verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's oneness between the Father and Son. There's the same Godness. Upon receiving the Spirit, you are welcomed into this fellowship. So back to verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. If you're in Jesus by believing in his name, find strength. Because the Father and the Son have made a home in you. You have the Holy Spirit. And that is a great gift. Let me also briefly mention another promise that Jesus says in verses 18 through 21. So he promises that he will not leave the disciples as orphans in verse 18. But he will come to them. But he's this time referring to his resurrection. Verse 19, 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. After his resurrection, Jesus did not appear uh, to those opposed to him, but only to his disciples. So Jesus continues, because I live, resurrection, you will also live. Because I was dead and I came to life, your end will not be death, but life. In that day, after my resurrection, when I appear to you, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, there's that intimate union again between Father, Son, Spirit, and people. And the turning point for the disciples to understand this teaching on unity with the Father is after Jesus' resurrection, a future event at this point in time. So, as Jesus is talking... The disciples are not getting what he's saying. But now, for more on that idea of their future understanding of his teaching is the second benefit of the Spirit. Point B. Jesus' teaching will come to their remembrance and be interpreted for them. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit will continue what Jesus has started. The Spirit does not teach his own thing. For these disciples, the Spirit will remind them of Jesus' teaching while he was with them over the previous three years. But he will also teach them the significance of what Jesus was saying to them. Understand, this promise is not specifically for you and I. It's specifically for these disciples at the time. So when they received the Spirit after Jesus returned to heaven they began to fully understand what Jesus taught them and what Jesus did for them in death, and then they went out witnessing, as the book of Acts describes. So the Spirit changed them by teaching them what they had already heard from Jesus. But now this is where we come in. We can have confidence that the writings and the testimonies of these first disciples in what became the New Testament is an accurate retelling of actual events because of the Holy Spirit. So as we, as we read in John, I'm not trusting that John strained his memory perfectly to recount every detail of what Jesus said and did years beforehand. But I'm trusting the Holy Spirit that was dwelling within John, aiding his memory as John put ink on a scroll. So according to verse 17, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Moments before, in what Bill preached last week, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. Verse 6. The Spirit is truth because He is God, one with the Father and the Son, intimacy with both of them. And His ministry is to bear witness to the truth, Jesus the Son. 
And those first disciples shared in that fellowship when they received the Spirit. Look at verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And we can have that intimate relationship with God as we read the true words of the Bible. As the Spirit teaches our hearts and as we believe in the name of Jesus. After our relationship with God begins through faith, the Spirit will minister to our hearts by helping to interpret certain passages or will remind us of certain verses that we've read or memorized when we need it most. That's how the Spirit ministers to us today. So what felt like abandonment, Jesus promises the disciples that the best is yet to come through the Holy Spirit. Next, he prepares his disciples for his departure with, second, a clarifying definition. Now, I've been sidestepping verses that constitute another main theme of the passage in order to focus on the Holy Spirit, but now it's time to really focus on these verses. Jesus makes a clear distinction in this passage between those who are with him and everyone else. Like in verse 17, Jesus says that the world cannot receive the Spirit. And in verse 19, he says the world will not see him following his resurrection. This promise uh, prompts Judas, not Iscariot, who's in the everyone else category now, to ask in verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us but not to the world? Now, G Judas may be confused because there's Old Testament verses like Isaiah 40, verse 5, that teach all humanity will see the glory of the Messiah. So Jesus does not yet specifically answer his question of how he will manifest himself to the world, and we'll address that in our third point. But for now, Jesus makes a clear distinction between his disciples and everyone else in the world opposed to him. And it has to do with the theme that verse 15 introduces. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. His disciples love and obey him. The world does not. So let's imagine the flow of argument without verse 15. So let's start in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. And to do these greater works in terms of quantity, not quality, the disciples will need help, the Holy Spirit. So after Jesus departs, verse 13, notice, ask. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And verse 14, if you ask, me anything in my name, I will do it. Straight to 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. For the greater works, in verse 12, and in order to receive these great things that they ask for, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus will ask the Father to send the Spirit. The world cannot have this gift. Verse 17 reads, because it neither sees him or knows him. 
So what does that mean? The world doesn't believe in Jesus. Now, in verse 12 that started the section, Jesus restricted these benefits to those who believed in him only. So who is a believer in Jesus that these benefits are reserved for? Right in the middle, verse 15 provides the clarifying definition. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But even for this, the disciples will need the Spirit to love and obey Jesus. Because it's not, okay, Lord, I'm going to love you. I'm going to listen to you. Give me that Spirit. No, it's humility before him. Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive my sins. So with salvation in Jesus, you receive the Spirit who then leads you to obey his commands motivated by your love for him. Obedience is an attribute of his true followers, but not a precondition for being one of his followers. And theologian D.A. Carson goes so far as to write, the linkage of love for Christ and obedience to Christ approaches the level of definition. He then cites John's later letter, of 1 John in 5.3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Our clarifying definition is your next blank. Loving Jesus is obeying his commands. I've never used Greek so much in a sermon, but the same Greek verb is translated keep in 14.15 of John, and in 1 John 5, 3. And the same Greek verb is used three more times in John 14. All translated as keep with the idea of obedience. Like verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now notice verse 23 is positive. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And verse 24 is the negative couplet. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And look at what is right between the phrases in the first part of 23a and the first part of 24. The end of verse 23. And we, the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our home with him. That is through the Holy Spirit. So the privilege of being the dwelling place of God is exclusively for those who are Jesus' disciples. Those who love Jesus by obeying his commands. And this obedience is not a flash in the pan. It's over time. Let the Spirit produce that fruit. Your character becoming more like Jesus' character over years, over decades of obedience. This longevity of obedience is not produced by duty or effort on your part, but only by love for Jesus. Now that is a disciple of Jesus. So I'm talking to those of you now who have years and decades of obedience out of love for Jesus. Younger people in our church need your experience, your encouragement, even your exhortation. 
mentoring opportunities abound. I think of faithful men or I think of women's Bible study where different ages and stages of life are brought together. So for the more mature, take advantage of this opportunity. Make it more than a Bible study. Get to know and invest in someone younger than you that you meet through the study. Also, the Sunman Life Group, who sits mostly over there, is cooking. One large group may need to become three. Last month, Jonathan Sunman came to Adult Bible Fellowship 2 and 3, putting a call out for established saints to consider joining what the Lord is doing from these 30-year-olds all the way to the young 20-year-olds. But how can established saints help? As the group multiplies into smaller, more intimate groups, what a blessing it would be for more mature disciples to be present and available and share your life about what the Lord has done in it. That is the definition of mentoring. And for other life groups, consider inviting someone older than the group norm and consider inviting someone younger than the group norm. Same thing for our small discipleship groups. Because if all of you are from the same life stage with the same experience, you'll have all the same questions and answers, which leads to sameness in you, not growth. Mix it up, because some of you need to realize that you're not the young ones anymore. I'm talking to you when I say mature and established. Those are nice terms. You're the old person. You're the older couple or family now. And that's great, because what you've got, years of experience obeying God, not perfectly, but consistently over time, needs to be shared with those who've come here after you for the health of this church and for the continued expansion of the Lord's kingdom here and beyond. Oh, how the Lord may use your presence or your availability and your sharing to benefit someone younger than you. So for, to close, for a disciple to love the Lord, he or she must Obey the Lord. So let's wrap up by clarifying what is necessary for our loving obedience and also what must occur first for the Spirit to come for, to these disciples. Jesus addresses these in the last section as he prepares his disciples for his departure with, number three, a gentle challenge. Verse 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, here's the challenge, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. How are the disciples responding to his departure? Fear and grief. In Jesus' words in John 14, apply comfort to their fears until now. What should have been their response to his departure? Joy. Why are they grieving instead? Because Jesus says, if you loved me. Lack of love for Jesus. That's why they're grieving. 
They are not rejoicing like they should be. And the reason that they should have joy is given. Because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now this phrase, used by the church leader Arius 1,800 years ago, as evidence that Jesus is not God, and that heresy survives to this day through the Jehovah's Witnesses, is used by Jesus in context to challenge his disciples. So please see the pastor's email from Thursday for a much fuller treatment of Arius' false teaching, what the phrase means in context, and even St. Nicholas thrown in. But please don't leave here believing that Jesus is not truly God or some lesser God. Come, talk to me. We can talk about this verse. Because what Jesus is saying in verse 28, that, that if the disciples truly loved him, they'd be rejoicing that he gets the privilege of returning to his Father, to the place of undiminished glory that he shared with his Father since forever. But then God the Son left that sphere of glory, humbling himself by taking on human flesh so Jesus can say in this moment that the Father is greater than him. But he's going back to that glory, which is his gain and which brings him much joy. And the disciples are stuck in their own feelings. So what's his challenge to the disciples? It's your next blank. Quit being selfish. And what's Jesus saying to us today? Quit being selfish. We miss so many things that our master is doing in the world that bring him much joy because we're wallowing in a steady diet of me, me, me. What poisons loving obedience to Jesus in our lives? Selfishness. What quenches the Spirit's ministry to us and His leading in our lives? Selfishness. We're just the latest in the line of disciples that stretches all the way back to these first ones that can expound every detail of what's causing us trouble without even a thought of what brings our Master joy. So let's be honest. We do not deserve Jesus' love for us. And neither did these disciples. But Jesus gives the antidote to selfishness in verse 29 and following. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus, one with the Father, yet sent on a mission by the Father, has perfectly obeyed his Father on the mission, because he's never sinned. So the ruler of the world has no claim on him. But now he's going to depart and complete his mission by obeying the Father all the way to death on a cross. What's his mission? To rescue the world from their own sins that have doomed them to death. And Jesus will finish that mission by perfect obedience 
and sufficient sacrifice. So while the disciples are stuck in selfishness, Jesus is selflessly loving them. Jesus earlier told them to demonstrate their love for him through obedience. But first, Jesus would demonstrate his love for the Father through obedience, even death on the cross. That's how Jesus made salvation possible for us. When trusting in Jesus, when turning from your sins, former sinners become the dwelling place of God by receiving the Holy Spirit. And then he empowers us to display our own love for Jesus by obeying his commands, including dying to our selfishness and living for Jesus. But it all began with Jesus' loving obedience to his Father, the one who gave his life for our life. So to put it together, your last blank, you can be saved from your sins, receive the Spirit, and lovingly obey his commands because Jesus lovingly obeyed his Father to the cross. And that's how Jesus answers the question from verse 22. The world will know that I love my Father because I obeyed him all the way through to my death. And when I go back up, you're going to receive the Spirit so you can tell the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the peace that we can have with you. The peace that you, Jesus, have earned for us through your perfect, loving obedience to the Father without sin, and then through your sufficient sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Lord, you call us to love you, but you set us the example of how you love the Father all the way to the end. And then that very truth, that example, that power you give us through the Holy Spirit is how we can love you by obeying your commands. And we pray, Lord, for your help. How often we think of ourselves more than you. It's programmed in us from birth. So, Lord, help us. Die to ourselves today. If we are in Christ, may we die to ourselves today and live for Jesus. If someone has not done that even for the first time, Spirit, I pray that you would come and humble them and may they believe in Jesus. You give us life and may we live for you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand, please?